Welcome to Ulcerative Colitis Autoimmune Healing Journey. I am your journey guide, Jay India, and I'm so happy that you are here because this is a supportive, positive environment where we can heal together. This is episode 13, Healing Trauma with Allison Chawla. Just a disclaimer before we start, we will be discussing childhood sexual abuse. Also, if you feel activated in any way after listening to this episode, please contact a mental health professional. And we have one right here you can work with virtually or in person. Right, Allison? Yes, indeed. Absolutely. I'm so excited to introduce this amazing guest, and I know her IRL or in real life. Allison Chawla is an LMSW certified life coach, alternative healer, and writer. She maintains private coaching and healing practices in both Manhattan and Rhinebeck, New York. That sounds fancy. fancy. <laughs> <laughs> She's fancy. I worked very hard for that. <laughs> I don't even yes, now I know. call myself fancy, ever. Oh, she's fancy. You have to see her on Instagram. <laughs> you see all her hats and everything. She's fancy. So uh, Allison holds a master's degree in social work from Fordham University and a life coaching certification from the Life Purpose Institute. That's so cool. Before obtaining a, yeah, before obtaining a clinical degree, she mastered certifications in Reiki energy healing. Oh, I have that too. Meditation and meridian tapping for anxiety. She also holds certifications in applied neuropsychology and neuroscience for treating anxiety, worry, and panic. She believes in the treatment of the combined mind, body, soul trio for optimum wellness, which you're in the right space because we do too, <laughs> and incorporates both clinical and holistic approaches with her patients. Welcome, Allison. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here with you. This, this is such a delight. And, and thank you for calling me fancy. I'm a thrift shopper. So I guess I don't, I think of myself as uh, thrifty and just managing my own wellness with, uh, you know, fun things. It's sort of like an art form. How have we not gone shopping together? I don't know, but this will definitely happen. This will definitely happen. And also we're a good shopping partnership because we're so different in height and body type. Yeah. So we're not that that similar, but I really do, you know, I'm not (laughs) always in needing to look good to feel good. But for me, I'm sort of my own palette and my work is very serious at times. And so to be able to creatively express myself is a real, it's a true delight for me. It's just, it's just a hobby and a lot of fun. Um, But thank you. And I love hearing, I sound very impressive when other people are reading about my credentials. (laughs) You do. You're an overachiever and you're super fancy. And we're going to have everyone look at your Instagram later so they can see what you look like. And that's I'm very, but I, I certainly don't think of myself that way. I just, I feel very grateful for what I get to do. Yes. And you're also a very humble metaphysical person. And that's why you're my friend. Thank you. you Likewise. (laughs) In the last two episodes of this podcast, I've been discussing how my childhood trauma was a major factor in causing my IBD, inflammatory bowel disease. And the one I have is called ulcerative colitis, as you know. Mm -hmm. So do you see this in your patients where they're holding on, especially to childhood trauma? And if so, how long have they usually stored childhood trauma as an adult? Oh, gosh. Well, well. to answer the first part, uh, yes, I most certainly have seen your condition itself, but I've seen a tremendous amount of physical ailments, in particular in the digestive system, with adults who were abused or molested as children. And sometimes it's not just the digestive system. However, 
you know, some of the other things I've seen are like tightness in the trachea. And, and that really is connected, you know, that's where we swallow and that's where we begin to digest. But most certainly in almost all of my patients that are clients, and it's interchangeable really, that have been through some level of sexual abuse, there is a physical issue. Because although there isn't this quantitative research that you can find easily that says, yes, indeed, this is why you have this issue, if you think about the physical reaction or the psychological effect on a body, on a human, when something that is that level of betrayal has occurred, there's this overall tension and fear and constant worry that something or someone is not going to be safe, especially if you were hurt as a child. And inevitably, that affects the physical body. Yeah. And that's what I went through. But Allison, I didn't know what I was going through. Like I didn't know I was grabbing onto all these situations as an adult because I had safety issues. Do you see that where like people don't know what the fuck they're doing? Excuse my language, but they don't know what they're doing. Yes. And if I may, because I did listen to both of those, you said something that I thought was so brave and helpful for other people to hear. A lot of the the turmoil as an adult comes from the fact that as a child, even if you know that there's something not quite right, the physical stimulation can feel pleasurable. And there is a tremendous amount of internal conflict that occurs because the poor child is sitting there thinking somewhat like tickling, like, oh, this actually feels good, but oh, something is telling me that this is wrong. So there's a lot of confusion. And what happens most of the time, very much like in your case, when we take the trauma and we suppress it because either the shame is too severe, the memories are too unbearable, whatever the case may be, you were told that you had to keep this a secret. We hold this inside of our bodies and we just learn to survive. I'm saying we, just as someone who treats people, I have not experienced that in in my lifetime. I've only worked with people. Um, But I always say we so people know it's like a collective experience when we're talking about difficult subjects like this. But we do our best to survive and become adults. You know, even children who are protected, things happen, maybe bullying, for an example, and, and they hold on to it. They don't want to tell people they're embarrassed or they're scared because these Feelings have shame associated with them, unfortunately. So I do see that majority of the time. Someone comes into my office and says, I don't know why I do this. I don't know what I'm doing. But I know finally, I don't want to do it anymore. And this is what I've remembered and what I think has happened. I have so many comments. <laughs> you see so many, so many great things that I don't even know where to start with that. (laughs) So many beautiful things. I want to start with actually going back to the first, one of the first comments you made about the trachea and absolutely how things get stuck in there. And it's funny, I've been having this problem with acid reflux. It just started to pop up. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, I didn't even know what it was. And I had had to go to an ENT and he diagnosed me and he's like, it's acid reflux. I'm like, how the hell did I get acid reflux? And I've had a, a couple energy healings and obviously changed my diet a bit. And I can tell that it's something more as we talk mind, body and soul. It's not just the diet. No, there's something. No, there's something else where I felt that I was not speaking my truth enough, even though I have four podcasts, there's more that needs to come out. And I think that's what it is. And when you touched on how we can derive pleasure 
physical pleasure from sexual abuse. I am so glad you bring this up because no one talks about it. It's and it's across it's shameful. the board. It is so you know. I just got chills when you said it because my heart just aches for anyone that has come to me or anyone that has been through this. And I I work with anyone that has been sexually abused. I will never work with anyone. I just can't who has sexually abused someone because you damage the child. And regardless of whether or not they are able to function throughout life, the damage on some level is always permanent. Always. And I just, I cannot forgive anyone that does that to a child. It just makes me sick. What was I saying about the trachea and the diet? I have seen so many people that have come to me and, you know, because I have a, a clinical training and a license, I do have to ask about a medical history. But often when someone comes in and I say, okay, well, let's start talking. And they're going like, as soon as they start speaking, I say like, let's talk about secrets. What are you holding? What did someone tell you you had to swallow? And I find that that tends to be the primary cause of things like acid reflux or like the inability to breathe, that tightness in the throat. Wow. Okay. Well, that makes me think a lot. And I am trying to figure out down the line how to do an episode that talks about the, I want to say this the right way, how you deal with the concept or the aftermath or the results of being sexually abused as a child. It's violating, it's mentally and emotionally violating, but it's physically pleasurable, unfortunately. And then you take that into adulthood and things are fucked up. Fucked up. In the be- in the, and, and in the bedroom and with partners. I know. Yeah, I know you know. So. I know so many people that struggle to have healthy, intimate lives and yeah. then have their own children and then they can't have sex anymore. Like it. Re- this yep. is part of what I'm saying is that when you... When this happens to a child, especially when it comes to sexual functioning, there's never 100% healthy sexual functioning. There's always some kind of conflict and, and just trap that they're in, that they can never feel completely comfortable or safe. And it's just terrible. And yeah, and I do want to, maybe you'll come back for the, for the episode when I do this, because I need help to articulate it. But sure. it's like you feel, as someone who is a survivor of, of childhood sexual abuse, you feel like, like you're broken in some way in regard to sex. You know, you feel not just the emotional, mental, of course you feel that way, but you feel like, damn, I can't fix this. And that's the thing that gets, that gets to me sometimes. And uh, luckily I have a great partner and we've worked through a lot of things and everything's good, but you know, there's still times where I'm like, Uh, Well, and I think it also has a lot to do with somebody took something from you and you can never get that back. So how can you fix something that you can never get back? You know, someone, when you did not know any better and you were told to listen to adults and respect your elders or respect your caretakers, someone took something from you that you can never get back. And so I think that's part of where that brokenness comes from. It's like, well, there's nothing I can do. I was four, I was six, you know, however old the person was, I was eight, 10, but still how you can't go back in time. And so it feels like it is something that can never be uh, adjusted or fixed, you know, whatever the word may be for, for the individual. Um, and everybody's yeah. so different. Yeah. It's such a, it's just, it, 
it's such a spectrum and it's, you know, I can only tell my story and, and what I've been through. So, all right. So as a child, my abuser told me to keep the abuse quiet, like you said, and I did. And I would say as a child in the 1980s, you know, you understand the term stranger danger. We now laugh at it now and hey, tell an adult, you the know, big white van, stay away from the white van. <laughs> <laughs> the white sprinter van. Don't go near yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. So from your psychological expertise, why do we hold so tightly, even though we, we do know and we're in school and we hear better and our parents tell us better, why do we hold so tightly to these secrets as children and then as adults? Because as you had heard in the episode, I didn't tell a responsible adult until 40 years later. Okay, yeah. 40 years later, I kept, I held on to this. And that was not helpful in my physical and emotional well being. That was not helpful in relationships. That was not helpful in career because I'm about to go off on a tangent, Allison. Because people, the other problem I think with society is that, and it's not a problem, but people always think, okay, sexual abuse survivors or abuse survivors are always angry. They're always lashing out at people. They're they're bad in school. Their homework. It's not necessarily yeah. that. There's a huge okay. spectrum. And then in adulthood, they always have problems in relationships, which uh, you would have to speak more to that. But I, you know, that wasn't my main thing. My main thing was always career, and I couldn't get my shit together career wise, and I could never figure it out. Could never. You know, yeah. I was motivated. I have a higher advanced degree, blah, blah, blah. And I could never figure it out. And then once I talked to someone about it, the light turned on. And I was like, okay, this is why I'm having problems in these areas of my life. So I'm sorry, I just went on a tangent. No. But we hold on to these secrets as children and then adults. So why, even though we know better? Well, I don't know that we really know better as children. So let's start there. Because okay. when you... When you're a child, you have adults telling you how to become a human being. And most people patronize children. And most people make children feel that their voice is not to be heard as much as the authority's voice is meant to be heard. Now, I've seen, you know, a shift in parenting. I've only become a parent in the last 10 years, but even in research where we've understood we have to get children to speak more. But even still, most of the time, sexual abuse happens with a caretaker or a family member. And so the relationship of what you believe is trust is already built. And I think a lot of the reason kids don't say anything is because it's that, that, that confusion that almost feels like drowning. It, it's, it's so confusing they think they're doing something wrong if they betray the lie or what they were told to keep to themselves. Most often they're told something bad is going to happen. You know, in children, regardless of whether it be corporal, which I hope for most people it's not anymore, or remove, you know, some kind of punishment where you take things away, that's punishment's a big deal because kids don't really, they can't really understand what the effect of sexual abuse is going to be. Because remember, it feels good. They're like, maybe something's wrong with me. Maybe I'm the problem. And then as we get older, you know, it's not just the only thing that's happening. All of these shifts are occurring in the psyche. All of these shifts are happening in the brain. At five years old, approximately, there's a shift in the prefrontal cortex, which is the initiation of the brain and how it takes in information. And it takes a lot of that stuff from five years to birth and it puts it in storage. So then after five, a lot of the time the kids 
they forget what really happened or they're confused. They don't know if it really happened. And I'm sure that's something similar that happened to you. And then, you know, adolescence, teenage years, fitting in with our peers, wanting to do well at school, wanting to be accepted socially, all of these things pile up on top of our plates and our decision-making. And the last thing most 13, 14-year-old kids want to do is say, well, I want to go out, but I was molested by my babysitter, and so I'm kind of scared to go out with you guys to get some pizza because you're likely feeling like you're the only one that this has ever happened to because it feels like such a shameful secret. And then we hit late teens, early 20s, and there's another shift in the brain. So it's really, it's really tough. I think people just assume that we're responsible enough as human beings to know how to speak up for ourselves. But there's so many psychological, emotional, physiological, environmental shifts occurring that a lot of the time suppressing it ends up being the answer. But we know whatever we try to hold in eventually finds its way out. That definitely makes sense in my case and. I really appreciate you describing it as confusing because that's what it is. It's so confusing. You don't even know what sex is. You don't even know. Exactly. And I, I say to people, how could they, how could someone do that to, to an innocent child? It really infuriates me, truly. That was very helpful how you said children are often patronized. Our voices are not, well, I'm not a child anymore, but when I was a child, our voices are not you know, seen or viewed as important. Uh -uh. And I remember with the caretaker who molested me, all I heard from my mom was like, oh, she's such a great artist. And she's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And and she makes this beautiful art. And she does so, you know, these people also do a really good job of grooming and and fooling the parents, because I just want to say both my parents were in education. My dad was a teacher. My mom was a social worker for a wow. child study team. And uh, she was good. You know, these people are really good at doing that, too. They are. Most of the time, they come off as incredibly caring and aware. And their appearance is usually polished. I mean, even if you think about, like, serial killers, it's, you look at the picture, they're pretty attractive-looking, interesting people. There's definitely an element of disguise and deceit. And when you have your mother or your father at night standing over you, wide-eyed and smiling, like, oh, we're so glad so-and-so's taking care of you. You seem so happy. Oh, we're so relieved. The last thing you're going to do is look up at five years old and say, well, I feel like I've been touched inappropriately. You know, it's that like, yeah, yes, okay, you look happy, mom, you look happy, dad, or, who, you know, whoever it may be. It's such a conflict for kids. It's awful. It is. It's such a conflict. And I think there is people pleasing involved in that. Yes. Children want their parents to be happy because if they're happy, they give love to the children. And that's not necessarily conscious, but like if mom and dad or dad and dad, mom and whoever, whoever it is that's taking care of you, if you're making them happy, then they're more loving and open towards you. And children, you know, at their core, they want to be taken care of. They want to know they're safe. They want to know they're loved. Yeah. Yeah. And you get this subconscious message that, okay, mom is dropping me off at the babysitter's house. And this is a big relief for her, you know, because it's convenient and it's a five minute drive and she can pick me up anytime she wants. And, you know, the whole thing. And, and then there's a lot of signs and I'm 
By the way, not blaming my family, my parents at all. I don't mean it that way. I have I hold no ill will toward them because this woman was good. She knew what she was doing. But, you know, there's a lot of signs, too. Like I was having constant UTIs, right? Why am I con- constantly having UTIs? My vision just kept going downhill and downhill and downhill. And no one questioned it because there's no mind-body-soul connection in the 1980s, right, or barely. Now I think it would be questioned a little bit if you took someone to a holistic, but maybe not. Well, now in the, even in the medical world or the, the world of psychology, uh, when you're observing a child, if they have frequent UTIs, you do assess for sexual abuse. Okay. Uh, or if they have trouble sitting down or they're squeamish when they're moving, you know, it's just terrible. I can't, you know, just even thinking about it makes me upset. Although I'm the first to jump into a courtroom as a social worker and defend a kid. But we do now, thankfully, look for that stuff. That was what I was going to ask you. That was one of the questions that I didn't put on our outline, but I want to throw in is nowadays, what is the talk that the school or parents give children about be careful? Well, I don't work in schools and I don't work directly with children, but I work with other social workers that do that. There are a lot of interventions which they don't announce to the parents. And I think it's a fantastic idea. Some of the parents don't appreciate this approach. However, this is how you find out if things are are happening because the parents don't get to threaten the children or the caretaker doesn't get to warn the child that they need to lie about something. So they're doing these interventions about healthy touch or safe touch, or has anyone said anything or done anything icky? And I don't have the precise language in me right now, But more or less what people do is have social workers enter schools and go to every classroom and talk about what these things are, what they feel like. And then the kids, after sitting for an hour or maybe, you know, a half hour, have the opportunity to raise their hand and say, I think I have been touched in a way that I shouldn't be touched. Or I think somebody has done something that's made me feel unsafe or icky. So that's one thing. And then, you know, we're just... It's a different world right now, especially with all of the access to information. We're trying to respect children as insightful beings versus minions that are all just making sound and doing the same thing. But again, it still happens. These terrible things still happen. They do. And it's, you know, it's positive, though. It makes me happy to hear that these things are going on and these idea of interventions I don't know if I said it in the two episodes you listened to, Allison, but I definitely wrote about it in my book where I would hoard, I don't think I did talk about this in the episodes, but I would hoard chocolate. You did say Under it. my bed. Okay. So I would hoard chocolate under my bed and that was safety for me. It was love. It's, it's, you know, whatever. When I hoarded the chocolate, it was just something that it's so hard to explain, but I couldn't let go of, but my mom got mad at me. She never said, let's go to a therapist and talk about it. And I always say that if I was taken to, and I hate the word, but fat camp in the 1980s, or if I was asked to go to a therapist, I would have probably divulged that secret. But because I was a thin kid eating all this chocolate, because everything was about weight in the 1980s, you guys, you and I, you and I grew up in the same area. You know what I'm talking about? It was all like, are you thin? Aren't you thin? And that's all that matters. We don't care if you're eating a hundred Reese's pieces a day. It doesn't matter. You just have to be thin. So if I had a weight problem, I think I would have been brought to a therapist and that 
my, you know, sexual abuse would have been exposed. So that would have been the form of an intervention. Now you never know, right? I'm just saying this is, but it's definitely possible, but that's why we're, you know, we're trying to look for so many other things and symptoms. And these are things that you can find online, by the way, for anyone that might not know, because it's not that it's readily accessible or available for everyone, but you can look online, what are the symptoms of sexual abuse in different age groups? But that whole like hoarding thing, that emotional eating thing, that is incredibly common in a child that's been sexually abused. It's sometimes it's the let me make myself unattractive so nobody wants to touch me and that mm. makes me safer. And then sometimes it's just, this is my secret. No one can touch it and no one can take it away from me. It might sound silly, but like I get emotional even trying to explain it because for someone that feels that unsafe, something like that can make them feel like they're going to be okay somehow because they have that thing. You just really helped me when you said that because it it is so affirming when you hear from someone like you who's an expert who says, yeah, I have many patients and many there are many studies where Victims of childhood sexual abuse hoard candy and hoard food. And I didn't know that until you said it. So I really appreciate you saying that. And that makes me feel not alone. Yeah. Because I, no one's ever told me that. Yeah. So I love that. Again, it's it's not, well, good. I'm so glad. Anything that I can do to provide relief to anyone is why I keep doing the work I do. But it's also, you know, it can come in other forms. It can come in eating disorders, you know, like bulimia. Cutting is a big thing. People are terrified when they hear about cutting. And I know this is going to sound absurd, but when someone's cutting, we say like, well, what is it doing for you? Are you in, or do you want to commit suicide? And a lot of the time they don't. It's just that it's kind of like letting the air out of a balloon that is so full that it's going to burst if they don't let a little bit of air out of, at a time. So what people are doing is self-inflicting harm or discomfort to let a little bit of that excruciating hot air out because they can't get it out psychologically. And it's theirs. It's their secret. So it's really confusing. And I know some people hear that and they gasp and I get it. When I was in school 10 to whatever years ago, and I heard if someone's cutting, you don't stop them right away. I was like, what? (laughs) But then I, you know, you learn to understand that someone that has been that hurt and that damaged, I hate to use that word, they find habits and ways and secrets and things that are just theirs that nobody can come and take from them again. See, that helped me so much that you've, you're helping my listeners so much. I know they're going to grab so I much from so. this. That is something I needed to hear is like, okay, that makes sense. You have this little secret because sometimes I do things and they're little, these little weird secrets and I don't know why I'm doing them. Let me just say one thing. I don't encourage cutting or self-harm. I don't right, encourage. Right, what right, I'm right, saying right. is when I hear it, when I see it, I don't panic. I work to understand it and then I help people move out of it into a safer way of processing, Uh, you know, something adaptive versus something that's maladaptive. But anyone that's been sexually abused still has a child in them. I mean, even if we haven't, we still have that child. We can still go back to memories from childhood and remember who we were. And I think many people as adults are like, gosh, that little me, I wish I could go back and tell her something or tell, tell them something. And so that those habits are kind of like that kid who's still there who's just like, I'm here. They hurt me. I am trying to figure my shit out and I can't. So I got this thing that I do that I chew on or what, you know, whatever the case may be. I am the textbook 
<laughs> example because I'm I'm constantly chewing on pens and stuff and I can't figure that one out yeah. either. So that's really interesting. Now I want to move into a more general talk of trauma. Sure. But thank you. That was so helpful. And I'd love for you to come I back so. and us delve into it a little more. Yeah. I'd be honored. And you know, I was just going to say, uh, thank you for calling me an expert. I never call myself an expert because then to me, that means I know everything. I'm like, I've got all the information and I feel like I'm constantly learning more because human beings and human behavior is ever changing. But thank you. Yeah. I like to call myself a guide. That's my, <laughs> that's my. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a holder of safe space. I call myself a safe container. Ooh. Oh, I like that. That's cool. Okay. All right. Safe container. Yeah. Yes. That's what I say to people. I say, I'm a safe container. You can tell me. Okay. Okay. Ready for the next question, safe container? Ready. <laughs> <laughs> I like that so much. I'm just going to text you now and, and say, SC, SC, <laughs> what's up? That's actually a really lovely way to describe that in the process that you provide for your patients. I, I think that's beautiful. So. Thank you. Thank you very yes. much. Yes. All right. So being more general about trauma. So I want you to explain to us how the body stores trauma and also <laughs> what is considered trauma. I know there's small T trauma, such as a kid made a negative comment toward me in middle school, and I hold on to that as an adult. Then there's big T trauma, which is abuse, fighting in war, living in a war zone, death, and more. How do small T traumas and big T traumas affect our bodies differently with regard to storing negative energy? Great question. Okay, I'm going to jump a little bit into the brain again right now. Our brain processes information and distributes to the other parts. You know, our brain is like this constant communicating machine of so many parts. It's as vast as, if not more vast than the universe and the ocean. And, you know, we're just constantly trying to understand it. But, you know, healthy information enters the brain in the cortex. It goes through that, you know, that big part of the brain is called the cortex. And then it's sort of distributed through maybe the emotional center of the brain has a, has a reaction and we put it in little safe places. And then it goes down the spinal cord, which people don't realize, but the spinal cord, the nervous system is connected to the brain. So healthy information kind of does this sort of flow through the brain and down into the body. Now, trauma, unhealthy information, it's somewhat like taking like a vase and smashing it into the brain. And the brain has a reaction. The emotional center of the brain, it's called the amygdala, starts to fire and say, this is not safe, something is wrong. And what happens is the trauma actually, instead of processing healthily through the parts of the brain and then just traveling through the body and the spinal cord, like little shards of glass like a, or a splinter get stuck in the different parts of the brain and the body. So if you see someone that was very frightened as a kid, uh, when they hear a certain sound, like your shoulders go up. Like me, my left shoulder is sometimes connected to my earlobe because <laughs> that is literally trauma. That is how your body, while the information that could not be healthily processed was coming through, grabbed onto it or in the stomach or in the throat. You know, it's it, whatever it is. Some people, they, they scrunch their toes up when they feel nervous or they're anxious or, or their knuckles. It doesn't really matter. It's different and unique for everyone. And so that's usually how... I mean, small and large trauma can settle like that. But the bigger ones tend to create, you know, when someone can't function healthily as a human, that's when we know it's a bigger trauma. 
When someone can't enter a space and socialize and they start having a panic attack because the brain's going, you're not safe, you're not safe, get the hell out of here, that thing that happens is going to happen again. Or someone that, you know, has a, has a condition like yours where you, can, you can't eat sometimes and you can't digest and you can't have a bowel movement. So it's really just that the trauma, whether it be large or small, finds its way to sit in us physically. It's just that the bigger ones have a much more severe effect on us and much cause many more health issues. Okay, so this makes sense with my childhood trauma and having an IBD. And you see it all the time with autoimmune, all the time with autoimmune. Yes. And for anyone who's just interested in a really good documentary, it's, um, I know it on Gaia, but I think you can buy it on Amazon Prime. It's called Heal. It's probably like 10 years old. Yeah. But they talk about how trauma is stored in the body and it's a lot of people with autoimmune disorders and they have this group. It's really fascinating because they have this expert healer. I can't remember the guy's name right now. I think it's Rob Wergen actually. He has this group of people and they have to say what their ailment is. Almost the whole room was autoimmune. Like I have fibromyalgia, I have Hashimoto's, I have ulcerative colitis, I have... So it really does store in our DNA in our cells. It does. And it's great that you said DNA because we are now finding that we can actually pass it on to the next generation in the DNA. So it kind of goes into the double helix, you know, the two strands that make up the DNA and it affects it and it changes it. And then your offspring inherit the new DNA versus the original DNA. And people don't understand that that can happen. I think it's just so essential to process and try to heal as much as you can from trauma in your lifetime before you have kids or even after. So they see you healing and they see you doing the work, but you can pass it on. Yeah. And I'm sure you know the study. I don't know the exact name, but it's where they um, studied uh, Holocaust survivors. I'm going to bring it up. Yeah. 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 I have a a client that her great grandmother was a Holocaust survivor and she has inherited post-traumatic stress disorder. Oh, wow. Yeah. She's always afraid someone's breaking in. She's always feeling on some level she has to hide. I think there was minimal interaction as a kid where she heard some of the stories, but she said, I feel like I've just came into the world knowing that something terrible had happened and that it could possibly happen again. Isn't that incredible? It's not easy to understand. It's easier to understand when you know the science or if you're just, you know, like a a spiritual or a metaphysical person knowing that energy passes on and moves into other people. But it is. It's phenomenal because 30, 40 years ago, no one, there were definitely people out there talking about it, but you couldn't so easily discuss this or have a common conversation about it. Absolutely. Just watch an episode of Mad Men. (laughs) (laughs) They were not doing psychotherapy. No, they were not. (laughs) (laughs) They were drinking and partying and having a good time. Yes, they were. (laughs) So as a psychotherapist, how do you help patients release trauma and heal? And what advice can you give to the listeners? Well, I incorporate a lot of things into my practice. Maybe I'll stop calling myself a psychotherapist, although I worked hard for that. I incorporate a lot. I, I do talk therapy, but I really tap into everyone's energy. And because I am an energy healer, you know, I'll sit there and say like, what's that thing going on with your right leg? Or what is that weird pain on your side? Because I will start to just feel an indication or an energy that the person in the room with me is having an experience. So 
even if people find me online on psychology today, I always get people who are open to that. We find each other. I do talk therapy because it's important to talk it out and purge it out. I will offer energy healing. I do offer different types of meditation. And I met, you know, I mentioned I do tapping. There's so many different modalities. It honestly depends on the person because everyone needs something different, even if everyone is talking about something similar. But the beautiful thing is that you are a metaphysical person. And of course, the metaphysical people and spiritual people are going to find you and you're going to resonate with them. And I so appreciate that you offer all of these energy and holistic approaches and that you're not afraid to say, you know what, I can tell that something's wrong with your hip. You know, I can feel that. Well, you know, 25 years ago, I might have hesitated a bit more, but I just, I know what I'm meant to be doing. And and also if someone doesn't want to hear it, they're not the person that, you know, I can refer them to someone. It just comes through. It has to be said. It has to be done. It's nice that we have healers like you out here to help us, you know, because that's what we need. When you heard my story, I didn't know you were existed. We hadn't met yet. When I went to the trauma energy healer. It sounds very similar to what you do. Very yeah, similar. I love that you did that and the way you spoke about her. I think I do do something similar to what she does. I'm thrilled to know there's multiple ones of us out there. And that if I can't do something, I have incredible people. Like I have a gentleman that shares my space and he does sound therapy healing and he does body work. And so, you know, we're all sort of in this together as wanting to provide space you know, if you go to one person and they don't have exactly what you think is right, it's their duty to send you to somebody else that could help you better. Do you have any last thoughts or any just a parting word of advice for the listeners? If you've been through something and you're holding it inside of you, this was not your fault. You do not need to be ashamed. Find someone that you trust to talk to because you can start to live a better life if you work towards getting this out of you. It's like a poison. It needs to be purged. It needs to get out of you. And I know that so many people feel embarrassed, but you're going to find you have so much support out there when you start talking about it. And, and take it slow. Take it slow. And again, like Jay said earlier, if you are feeling triggered or you are upset or activated, call a professional or even just call a friend first, someone to give you some support. Beautiful, beautiful parting words. And I'm evidence where you can change your life if you work at it. I'll always be healing. But once I really addressed it and have started healing from the trauma, my life has changed in so many beautiful ways. And I've met the most amazing people, including Allison. And Allison, I don't know if you know this, but I don't think I told you this, but we had met through... We both had worked with an organization in our town and Allison had contacted me about something. And I think you were the last person to contact me on that Instagram account before I had to shut it down because they asked me to shut it down. So I'm like, how crazy. (laughs) (laughs) No coincidence. Absolutely. And so let's start talking about all the ways to find you, what your practice is like. Can, do you work with people virtually? So I'd love for you to speak to that. I do. And I'm able to do energy healing virtually. So for people that don't think that that is possible, it absolutely is. Sometimes it takes a few extra minutes to sort of agree to let me access things. I do work in person and I do work virtually for people who are not close. And I think that the easiest way to get to me if they wanted to is to email me 
and it's my name, Allison, which is spelled A-L-L-I-S-O-N, at talktoallison.com. So that's Allison at talktoallison.com. And then I have an Instagram, which is sort of like you had expressed earlier. I talk about mental health, but I'm sort of playful on it. And that is also Talk to Allison, but it's talk, is that called an underscore? That Underscore. Talk underscore to underscore Allison. That's my Instagram. Yes, and Allison also has a phenomenal radio show called Talk to Allison, (laughs) available everywhere, Talk to Allison. And this podcast really, radio show, really embodies obviously who Allison is, but also who she brings into her life. You talk a lot about mental health issues so people can really get a sense of you. Mm -hmm. And you give a lot of really good advice, not only to the community, but specifically to parents. Mm -hmm. I find a lot of good parenting advice. Even though I'm not a parent myself, I was like, oh, wow, that's really interesting to know. Definitely. I mean, there's been so many things happening that are affecting children uh, and the way children think right now. You know, I try to invite people on that have survived and prevailed. I think we've all got a story, really. And so I like to bring on people that have a story that have maybe had to fight or struggle or just work hard or, you know, want to share their perseverance and their life, their stories. All of this information will be in the show notes. So I'm going to have links to everything so you can easily find Allison, check her out, listen to her, research her, see if she's the right person for you. Because if you're looking for someone in mental health, definitely, you know, check that out. All right, Allison. So how I end every episode is in my household, if you have just a perfect poo, a perfect shit. Oh, yeah. It changes the entire trajectory of the day. It really does. It absolutely does. But if you have a perfect poo, I call it a green heart day. I hope every day is a green heart day. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I just do. I can't function. I have to get up before everyone else to have my coffee so I can poo because I'm a miserable person if I don't poop. Listen, we get it. We all get it listening. Yeah. Imagine going <laughs> months with like hardly being able to poo. We won't even go into that. That's another episode entirely. Another but thank episode. you. Thank you, Allison. You are a light worker. You are a healer. And I'm honored that you were on. I'm so honored to be here. I really, you know, even if it just helps one person feel a little more free, I'm absolutely honored.